how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Our souls long, indeed they faint, for the courts of the Lord. The sparrow finds a shelter, a place for her nest, and your temple calls all of us within to find our rest. Let us worship the Lord our God.
praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, full of honor and majesty, God's works, and God's righteousness endures forever. The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All God's precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord sent redemption to God's people. The Lord has commanded God's covenant forever. Holy God, we praise you for all the wonders you have worked. And yet, despite your greatness, you remain near to us. We are the beneficiaries of grace upon grace, and so we thank you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered in worship here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the house of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's house that we have gathered, that means that our word of welcome is one that is always extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached. All are welcome in Jesus Christ, so all are welcome here. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on your pew. If you will kindly sign your name and send it down and back again, we will have the advantage of one another's names at the conclusion of worship that we might greet one another. And likewise, for those of you worshiping in other locations, we have a virtual friendship pad, which when you exit the service, you will find on the screen you use to log in. And we'd love for you to note your presence with us as well. We'd like to every ask everyone members and guests alike to a time of fellowship, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall. That's just out this door to the right of the pulpit and down a very short hallway. There you will find that our deacons have put together some light refreshments, but most importantly, as always, we will find opportunities to engage more deeply in our common life together. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention, both things today and things upcoming. The first is to note that our Gen X brunch will happen today. I am aware that the term Gen X group is an oxymoron, but if you are someone for whom you were the target audience for E.T., this brunch is for you. If you remember using a pencil to correct a cassette tape, this brunch is for you. <laughs> gather uh, with around me, I'm in the middle of Gen X, uh, gather around me in the old Buttonwood Hall and we'll walk over to a local restaurant to have brunch together. We'd love for everyone who identifies as part of that group to join us for it. The second thing you'll see in your bulletin is the session has called our annual meeting of the congregation for February the 11th. That will take place at 10 a.m. here in the sanctuary in order to be inclusive of both of our services of worship, both those who worship at 9 and those who worship at 11. So we will have that meeting here in the sanctuary between the services. The meeting will be live streamed, but you must be present to vote. That is keeping us consistent with the practices of our presbytery in doing so. So you will be able to watch it live stream if you are in another location, but if you wish to vote, you do need to be present for that meeting as well. One of our traditions for that service for years gone by was to have a fellowship lunch after. We're not going to do that because we're having it between the service to include both worshiping congregations. But for those of you who missed the fellowship lunch, we are going to have one on March 3rd when the students from Howard University will be visiting us for, as part of their alternative spring break. So we will have a fellowship lunch a couple weeks after the fact so that we will have that opportunity to gather together in Christian fellowship. The last thing I'd like to ask you to mark your calendar for is our upcoming conversations worth having. Dr. Brian Blunt, the President Emeritus of 
uh, Union Presbyterian Seminary will be our visiting theologian in residence that weekend. Brian will spend Saturday helping us to grapple with the problems of biblical interpretation and Christian nationalism. If ever there were a topic for our day, that is it. And I have said before, I recognize it's an ambitious topic, but I think churches need to take on ambitious topics. We need to be able to to love one another enough to be in honest conversation with one another. We're going to ask you to register for that, though, so that we can have the right amount for lunch that day. So please make note of that and mark your calendar, and then most importantly, go to the website and register to participate in that event so that we can make sure that we prepare for everyone to be with us. Brian is one of the best scholars for the church I know, and frankly, one of the best preachers I've ever heard. He'll be preaching the following day for both of our services here. That's a lot for you to sign up for, so I'm going to leave you to read the rest of your announcements at your leisure, and let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Holy God, you call us to be with one another as you are with us. Extend your word of grace to us in community, hearing our confession and offering us pardon. But too often, we don't see ourselves that way as we call together. Too often, we splinter off with those of like mind. We associate with those of similar means. We spend too much time with people who look like us and not enough with those who will help us see like a different way. Forgive us, we pray. Remind us that you call us to bear with one another, and as we do so, may we be blessed with the abundance of community which you have made us through Jesus Christ our Lord. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
The first scripture lesson today is from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 15 to 20. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, if I hear the voice of the Lord, my God, anymore, ever again see this great fire, I will die. Then the Lord replied to me, they are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words of the prophet shall speak in my name. I will hold, myself will hold accountable. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or presumes to speak in my name a word that I have not commanded, the prophet to speak, that prophet shall die. The gospel lessons from Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new, teach new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Our epistle lesson is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We read in the 8th chapter from the 1st verse through the 13th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things and for from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as being sacrificed to a food as offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us closer to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may never cause one of them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I was reminded this week of a children's sermon wherein the pastor was holding a stuffed squirrel and began quizzing the children as to what he had in his hand. The children were having none of it. They stared at him mutely. Finally, after he had quizzed the children just a little too solicitously, one intrepid child responded, We know the answer is Jesus, but that looks like a squirrel to me. As we begin pondering Hall's reflections on dietary practices, just remember that Jesus is the answer. Because I will readily grant that these scriptures tend to be the ones that struggle to have a modern application. So remember, Jesus is the answer. The Apostle Paul is really not loquacious on his dietary preferences. He does not anywhere identify himself as a carnivore. Uh, perhaps he was an omnivore, we don't know. But really, aside from this handful of passages in 1 Corinthians, here in chapter 8, where he appears to embrace vegetarianism for Jesus, and again in chapter 10, where he takes it up a notch, we really hear very little about the dietary preferences of Paul. Well, on one occasion, he does instruct his, his pupil Timothy to take a bit of wine for his stomach. But otherwise, Paul spends far more time debunking dietary restrictions than adding to them. And that is true of our church as well. Aside from the occasional malapropism, confusing, and this one's Philadelphia-specific, Presbyterianism and Pescatarianism, we do not tend to spend a lot of time in the Reformed tradition contemplating dietary restrictions or even preferences. But, since Paul has introduced the topic of vegetarianism, let me share that my grandfather was a vegetarian before it became a popular thing to do. Now his reason was relatively simple. My grandfather grew up on a farm in Mint Hill, North Carolina, and like most farm children, he had no illusions about the origin of meat. As a soldier in the Second World War, his diet consisted of rather subpar meat, and therefore his interest in it plummeted even further. So as an adult, he just wasn't very interested in eating meat. It held no appeal to him. And it happened that my grandmother was a marvelous cook who could turn a vegetarian meal into a feast. And thinking back on it, were I to use the same quantity of butter, salt, and bacon grease that my grandmother used, I too could probably be a very happy vegetarian indeed. But in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, being a vegetarian in the American South made someone won something of an oddity, and so my grandfather developed an affectation that to this day makes my stomach turn. Now, in the South, much as up here, cookouts in the summertime are something of a way of life, and so as not to cause his host to worry about what to serve the odd vegetarian, my grandfather resolved he would occasionally eat meat. But not just any meat. Where some folks might compromise by bringing, say, a nice piece of fish or perhaps even chicken to the person at the grill, <clears throat> my grandfather would present the frequently bemused chef with a can of Vienna sausages to grill. Now you heard me right. For the uninitiated, that is in fact 
the correct pronunciation of this particular meat byproduct if you are from a certain part of the world. Vaina has nothing to do with the city in Austria. It is an abomination produced by a shocking number of meat packing plants for which they have much answering to do. <laughs> Naturally, I wanted the details about this practice. So I followed up with my pescatarian mother as to why, in heaven's name, a vegetarian of all people would eat something, apologies to those of you who like them, so revolting. Here is what I learned. It was more important to my grandfather to be a gracious guest than it was for him to be a vegetarian tourist. Which brings us, in an odd sort of way, back to the Apostle Paul and his erstwhile vegetarianism. In the eighth chapter of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses the thorny problem of eating meat that has previously been sacrificed to idols. He settles on an elegant solution. The idols to which the meat was sacrificed do not represent real gods. So, the meat is just meat. There's nothing special about it. It's not tainted by proximity to a pagan practice. It's not dishonoring God because the Christians know full well that the idols are not real gods. So it's just meat. Paul knows this. Some of the Corinthians seem to understand this. Surely it's not a hard thing to grasp. But before he says any of that, Paul says something very telling. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He knows that there is no harm to his eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol representing a non-existent God. But if his dietary practices were going to cause consternation to someone struggling in faith, if his insistence on being right would cause someone else to struggle in faith or to turn away from the church, he would rather be wrong than be the reason that someone turned away from Jesus Christ. So he concludes, if that is the case, he will never eat meat again, rather than be the reason that someone weak in faith stumbles. The question to the Corinthians follows, are you going to eat that? It is an utterly grace-filled moment from the Apostle Paul. He is setting boundaries on Christian behavior for the sake of Jesus Christ. He is saying here, as he says elsewhere, that while Christian discipleship frees us from so much, it also binds us to one another and gives us the privilege of responsibility for our actions so that they do not harm others. There was an article last September in the Washington Post entitled, Everyone is Setting Boundaries. Do they even know what that means? Leaving aside the necessary therapeutic definitions that the article explores, one of the points worth contemplating for those of us considering what it means to live in community is this. The article writes, boundaries are not a means to manage another person's behavior or choices that are made independent of you. If you tell someone you don't like it when they wear a certain outfit or you don't want them to post certain photos of themselves, that's not a violation of a boundary, that's just a preference. But what Paul is doing here is setting boundaries for Christian behavior in their right context. The article goes on, it's important to remember, and it's important for the church to remember this, that setting boundaries is about how you want to be treated as you live your life, and how you react when someone crosses the line. 
for instance, if you're in a romantic relationship with someone who seems to flirt a lot with another person, it's okay to say, I worry about this relationship you have with this person. It makes me uncomfortable. And if you can't come to an understanding around the issue, you may decide the relationship doesn't work for you. That would be a healthy boundary. In this case, you're not asking the other person to change their behavior, but you're changing your own behavior. Paul wants the Corinthians to monitor their own behavior, to take responsibility for the outcomes their choices precipitate. I have a dear friend who is an authority on many topics. She's one of the smartest people I know. I think the word polymath was invented to describe her. I was at dinner one time with her, and her husband, also a very bright man, was just sure about something but he was wrong. And I knew he was wrong, and what's more, I knew that she knew that he was wrong. But nonetheless, she astonished me by just going along with it. So as soon as he left the table to go to the bathroom, I pounced, you know better than that. And she replied, well, we've learned a few things in marriage counseling. He has learned that I need him to be emotionally available to me, even if he's interested in something else. And I have learned that I can be right all the time, or I can be married, but not at the same time. <laughs> it is better sometimes to be gracious than to be a purist, or even to be right. But here's what I struggle with, and perhaps you do too. It is important sometimes to be right. It is important for the church to be right about a whole host of things, about our witness involving racism or gun violence, consumerism, inclusion, about the cheapening of covenant commitment with salaciously sexualized advertising, targeting adolescents, to say nothing of the toxic effects of social media uh, on the well-being of young people and the cohesiveness of our society. There are so many things about which we need to be right because getting them wrong means doing irrevocable harm to the fabric of who we are. So make no mistake about it. Paul is no pushover for bad theology. There are some Galatians that are still smarting from the letter he wrote to them, and they've been dead a couple thousand years. But here, here in Corinthians, Paul is saying that on a matter where changing his own behavior doesn't amount to any more than a hill of beans, it is better to be gracious, it is better to be kind. And with that, he is saying something profoundly important to us. Because it doesn't matter how right we are on certain things if we calculate the human cost. And that is where the discernment that can only come with maturity in faith, live out in community in faith, comes into play. Because times really don't change that much. There's still plenty about which it is possible to be 100% right and 100% at odds with the purposes of God. Just off the top of my head, it is possible to be 100% right about the constitutionality of gun control in this country and be as wrong as we can possibly be about the church's witness when it comes to gun violence. We can be 100% right about everything we say about marriage and sexuality and the Bible. And I do feel it is important from time to time to pause and acknowledge that our stance as a congregation here on inclusion and marriage equality does put us at odds with 
great swaths of the larger Christian church, but I think it's also equally important to point out that we arrived where we are at a place of deep commitment to inclusion, dignity, equality, not in spite of what the Bible says, but because of what the Bible says. It's equally important to be clear, because theology matters, that our teachings, our beliefs, are biblical because not to do so is to cede the authority of Scripture to those whose theology and whose teachings are part of a larger problem. That problem being theology that contributes to the greatly higher instances of suicide among LGBTQIA adolescents than their counterparts. All of that can be true. All of that is important. But if the way we say it drives a wedge between us and those who most need to hear what we are saying, then we have missed an opportunity. We can be as right about economic theory and the effects of taxation and the best way to alleviate poverty as every one of the economic theorists of all time combined. But if we're satisfied with allowing people in Philadelphia to starve or to freeze, we are wrong where God is concerned. So Paul says we can be right about our understanding of God and meat sacrifice to idols, but if the meatloaf on the table turns someone seeking Jesus away from the comfort of the church, we've blown it. Sometimes we have to give up being as right as we think we are because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Sometimes you can be right or you can be faithful, but not at the same time. And how we live with that uncertainty with the tension between those realities comes down to discernment. It comes down to being an authentic faith community. It comes down to following Jesus Christ. Because in the end, it is Jesus who will make all these things come around right. And so, I suppose that means, in the end, Jesus is the answer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us affirm our faith together with the ancient baptismal creed of the church. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remembering that all we have and all that we are is a gift from God, let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offering, remembering that God loves a cheerful giver.
Holy God, you call us into a deep and abiding relationship with you and with one another. It is a relationship that acknowledges that all that we have and all that we are is a gift arising from your deep love. And so we return these gifts to you as token of our commitment to live our lives knowing that we rest now and always in your providential care. Amen. Let us now continue in prayer as we unite our hearts and our minds before the Lord our God. God of love, you have given us to one another as a manifestation of Christ's own body. You call us to deep communities of faith, to support one another, to live in mutual discernment, to uphold one another in Christian love. We thank you for the gift of belonging to one another. And as your beloved, forgiven, and useful children, we offer our prayers for the world that you love. Where violence continues to reign, we pray for your peaceful presence. Where poverty of substance and spirit continues to deprive your children of the richness of life, we pray your healing presence. Where mental and emotional illness conspire to rob your children of a quiet and centered mind, we pray for your loving presence. Into all of our lives, in the ways that we need you, we pray your perpetual presence. Holy God, teach us the ways that you call us to live. Enrich our common life together with a sense of purpose and meaning by showing us the peaceful kingdom that you will. Hear now the prayers that we offer for the poor, for the lonely, for the heart sick, for the angry, for the grieving, for victims of gun violence and all other forms of violence. Into all of our lives, into the lives of each of those for whom we pray, give us your peace. And remind us always of our deep calling to carry our relationship with you into the deepest places of our lives. And to that end, may this church continue to be a haven of good news. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake, even as we continue our prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
sometimes it is very important to be right. Not probably as often as we think it is, but sometimes it's very important to be right. Other times, it is very important to be kind. And if you find you are having a hard time discerning the difference, phone a friend. That is what church is here for. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.